Welcome to Talking Human Rights. I'm Heather Robertson-Gaston, and welcome to part one of a four-part series we're doing exploring the life and work and ongoing legal predicament of Palestinian activist Issa Amro. Isa has been called the Gandhi of Palestine for his work in promoting and organizing nonviolent resistance among Israelis, Palestinians, and really people from all over the world. Isa has also been identified increasingly over the years as a targeted activist. You will see reports of Isa being harassed, assaulted, arrested, and detained, all because of his work as a nonviolence leader in the occupied territories. As of my recording this in September of 2019, this targeting of Issa appears to be coming to a head. As of now, Issa is facing trial before an Israeli military court, and simultaneously, he's facing trial before a Palestinian authority court. In the Israeli case, the charges relate to Issa's nonviolent organizing, things like planning a demonstration in the West Bank city of Hebron, where Issa lives and works, without first obtaining a permit from the Israeli military. In the Palestinian Authority case, Issa is being tried for violations of a controversial electronic crimes law for a Facebook post that criticized the PA for arresting a Palestinian journalist, also under the electronic crimes law. We're going to talk about the cases in this series, but one thing to keep in mind is that by the time you listen to this episode, what's happening with these cases will probably have changed. Perhaps the charges have been dropped. Perhaps the court dates have been continually postponed. Perhaps Issa is in prison. And perhaps you hear that and think that this is all going to be terribly out of date. But I could promise you that all that you're going to hear in this series will not be out of date no matter what happens with these cases. And this is because, believe it or not, the details of these cases and cases like them are not the most important thing to examine. What matters most, what truly needs attention, and what we're going to flesh out today is the context in which these cases exist. But back to Issa. Who is Issa Amro and why do we care about him? Well, as I mentioned at the top, Issa has been called the Gandhi of Palestine because he has worked tirelessly over the years to teach and promote and organize the use of strategic nonviolence among Palestinians, Israelis, people from all over the world. So what does that look like? Well, here is one activity for which Issa was arrested by the Israeli military in the summer of 2016. Now, this arrest matters particularly because it is said to be the event that triggered the compiling of the 18 charges that Issa now faces in the Israeli military court. Those charges date all the way back to 2010 to nonviolent demonstrations held that year. But what was Issa doing when he was arrested? When Issa was arrested, he was working with an international Jewish group called the Center for Jewish Nonviolence and an Israeli group called All That's Left, as well as a number of Palestinians from the organization Youth Against the Settlements. And together they had decided to commit the extremely radical act of building a cinema. Now, this would be the only cinema for a city of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, the largest city in the West Bank, the city of Hebron. Now, that might not sound like the most radical activity, building a cinema on land owned by Palestinians, but I assure you that given the context in which they were working, the context of Hebron, this was a very radical act of resistance. 
Now, I met Isa for the first time 10 years ago in Hebron. I watched him and interviewed him and followed him around as he worked on numerous projects, not unlike this one. And I was also extremely fortunate to catch up with Isa again this summer of 2019 and to spend some time talking to him about everything, really talking about the cases, talking about his approach to nonviolence. So here's a little bit from him on why he does what he does. I can say that, you know, I'm acting in a nonviolent way to follow my morals and my principles and to strengthen my civil society. And I don't want any violence for the future, too, because I want nonviolence to be a culture in the community and dialogue. And it means that we will reach democracy after after we get rid of the occupation. As we'll get to, the context in which ISA works is one of military occupation, which is extremely repressive and violent, such that building a cinema is seen as a provocative act worthy of arrest. And this kind of daily repression and violence presents a constant temptation for Palestinians, particularly young Palestinians, to answer with violence. This is something that ISA works to address. I do a lot of training for for children, for 18 ages. I give them examples of uh, uh, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, uh, you know, the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. I give them myself as an example, how I'm doing, what we are doing, and and, and giving them other tools and giving them confidence that they can make a change, not to lose their lives. Because people are depressed, they are uh, disappointed, they are sad that they can make a change. So they want to revenge even by sacrificing themselves and make the incubation suffer. And I tell them, no, you can make the incubation costly and keep your life and keep away from violence. And it works. And you will see them being part of the community. They feel that they can make a change by, by being part of the community and part of a movement. So that's just the tiniest snippet of Issa's approach. And I can't wait to talk more about the kinds of things he gets up to. But first, I said we were going to use this series to flesh out some context. So let's get to it. What is the context? Well, the context we need to discuss here in terms of Issa and his trials before an Israeli military court and a Palestinian authority court is the military occupation I just mentioned. That is the occupation of the West Bank by the Israeli military. We need to discuss that context because without that piece, none of Issa's story is going to make sense. It's just not going to make sense why Isa, a Palestinian who lives in the West Bank, would end up in front of an Israeli military court for organizing nonviolent activities in the West Bank. It only makes sense if you understand that the West Bank is under military occupation and how that occupation works. Then, building on that and within that context of occupation, we also need to understand what is this thing called the Palestinian Authority? Where did it come from? Why does it exist? How does it work? Again, within the context of military occupation. So what I'm going to do is paint a picture for you of what that occupation is and how it works. I'm going to include on the website photographs of what I'm talking about, sort of like I'm doing a PowerPoint. If you're not sitting at a computer, that's 
totally fine. You can just listen. But if you can get to one, it will help you see what I'm talking about. And I hate to say it, but it will help you believe what I'm talking about, because that is an obstacle here. Just believing that something like this, an ongoing military occupation on this scale is possible and is happening on a daily basis. It kind of defies the imagination. The website is www.talkinghumanrights.com, and this is Palestinian Gandhi on trial, part one. So let's get started. As I said before, I find that there is a lot of confusion out there about the occupation and about Palestinian statelessness. There's actually a lot out there in the world that would suggest to you that Palestinians like Isa Amro do have a state. You might hear that they have rights within Israel, the right to vote, the right to run for office and serve in the Israeli parliament, things like that. And that is a whole other discussion. That is the situation of Palestinians living within Israel, also called Israeli Arabs, who make up about 20% of the state of Israel. We could spend a whole series just talking about them, talking about their access to rights, but that is not who we're talking about right now. When we're talking about Isa Amro, we are talking about a Palestinian living in the West Bank, among about 3 million other Palestinians who are all living under military occupation without access to a state. Isa is not a citizen of Israel. He's not a citizen of anything. And this is something that really matters. I should also mention that there are about 2 million stateless Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip and millions more living all over the world as stateless refugees. I want to spend much more time discussing how statelessness and rightslessness are intertwined because we could actually go a lot broader than the Palestinians. But again, we're talking about the West Bank here because that is where Isa lives. That is his specific context. I also find that there is confusion specifically around the status of the West Bank. In Israel, I've heard people say again and again that the Palestinians in the West Bank basically have a state. And if you're ever crossing from Israel into the West Bank, crossing through the wall, there's a sign that says you are entering the Palestinian Authority. So when you see something like that, when you see a sign like that, you have every reason to believe you're entering a state or a semi-state. It can be very confusing. There also seems to be a lot of confusion about whether the West Bank is under occupation. In the United States, many of our political leaders either don't know this or they don't want to say it. And I know many Israelis don't like to say it either. So what I want to do is take some of the sting out of this word occupation, because really, this is a technical term. It's a legal term that describes what happens when one country invades another militarily, and then that military takes control over the area. It's not like this is a first. If it were a first, it would make sense that there would be some dispute over what to call this new thing. But Occupations have happened many times in history. In just one century, the 20th century, the West Bank alone has been under occupation four times, and that last occupation is still in place. But let's leave the West Bank alone for just a minute and talk about another occupation that most people know about. That occupation that most people 
pretend to know about happened when the United States and its allies invaded Iraq in 2003, overthrew the government, and then proceeded to stay for several years. And in fact, there are still U.S. troops there to this day. Now, during the early years of the occupation, we purged leaders, we killed leaders, we picked new leaders, we set up a caretaker government, we took over a prison, we took prisoners, we trained new military recruits, and they had to at least pretend to do what we told them to do because, again, they were under our military occupation. There was not a lot of disputing this. Now, there are many differences between the U.S. occupation of Iraq and the Israeli occupation of the West Bank, and that could take an entire other podcast to delve into them. But one major difference is that American civilians did not, en masse, move into Iraq. In the West Bank, Israeli settlers did. And that means that within the West Bank, there are Palestinians and Israelis living in the same geographic space, but with different legal rights, entirely different legal systems. The 400,000 or so Israeli settlers who live within the West Bank have the full rights of Israeli citizens. They are Israeli citizens. And then you have the 3 million or so Palestinians living in the West Bank who live under military rule, under Israeli military rule. And I do think it's worth discussing how this all came to pass and the technical reasons that this is called an occupation and not something else. Those reasons relate to the fact that there is only one agreed upon border between Israel and the West Bank, also called the Green Line, settled after the Arab-Israeli War of 1948. That border goes through Jerusalem, effectively dividing it in half between East and West. So any taking over of land and people beyond that border is considered an occupation, or in the case of East Jerusalem, an annexation. And so when you hear phrases like a two-state solution based on return to pre-1967 borders, it is that border, the green line, that is being referred to, and it is ending the occupation that is being referred to. There's really so much to say on this, but for now... I, I really want to bring it down to a human level and give you a sense of the feel and the look of the West Bank, the things that you can see with your naked eye that will tell you that this land is under military occupation, sort of like a guided tour. First off, something you're likely to notice as you're walking or driving around in the West Bank is that there are watchtowers looking down at you. I remember the first time I crossed into the West Bank, seeing these watchtowers looming overhead and just shrinking down into my seat. You will see watchtowers when you're traveling from town to town. You'll see them looking over refugee camps, over little villages, over the countryside. I put some photos on the site so you can see the size of these things. They they come in all sizes and shapes, truly, but the big ones are really quite big and you really do feel their presence. You will, by the way, see possibly hundreds of watchtowers in the city of Hebron, where Issa lives. I've included photos of those as well. 
there are big watchtowers, little watchtowers, watchtowers that are built right on top of people's rooftops. And that means that there are also soldiers on people's rooftops. So again, these are the houses of Palestinians we're talking about who live in the West Bank and the watchtowers that are built on top of their homes and the soldiers walking on top of their homes are not Palestinian, but Israeli. And that might be obvious to you already, but I've actually had the experience of walking through Hebron with a diplomat visiting from another country, and he asked me if the watchtowers and the checkpoints and all of that military infrastructure was Israeli or was it Palestinian? Because again, this kind of occupation really does defy the imagination. It's hard for the human mind to really grasp why a foreign military would occupy a city like this when we're not talking about an armed conflict here. This, this isn't a war zone. So yes, when you're in the West Bank, you will see watchtowers. You will also see soldiers, thousands of Israeli soldiers. You will see army jeeps. You may or may not see army bases, but if you know where to look, you will find them and you can identify them by the Israeli flags on top of them and all around them. You will also see and experience checkpoints where you have to stop and show your papers and sometimes answer questions about where you're going and why. You can spend hours waiting at a checkpoint and in the end be turned back, unable to get where you're trying to go. Some of the checkpoints are at places where people are traveling back and forth between the West Bank and Israel. There are also checkpoints within the West Bank between Palestinian cities. And in the case of Hebron, there are checkpoints within a Palestinian city. So it's important to take all of that in. There's also a prison, which you can see as you're, tra- as you're driving on the highway from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. So you don't even need to go into the West Bank to see that. You can just look right over the wall and there on the other side of it is a prison called Ofer, which houses over a thousand Palestinian prisoners. If you look on top of it, you'll see the Israeli flag not the Palestinian flag. And that is because it is an Israeli prison, even though it is on the Palestinian side and in prisons, Palestinians. There are also within the West Bank, what are called official Israeli army firing zones. These are the military training areas set up in the West Bank. These are harder to see because you have to go to the rural areas of the West Bank, like the South Hebron Hills, but you can go there and you can see the firing zone that takes up about 30 square miles of the West Bank. You can go and walk right up to the signs marking the firing zone, signs that say, do not enter. This is a closed military zone. You can even ignore those signs and enter, which might sound crazy, but many people do that as there are actually people living there in that firing zone. But that is a story for another time. The point right now is that all of these things taken together, all of this infrastructure, the walls, the watchtower, the checkpoints, the soldiers, the firing zones, all of this taken together tells you that this place, the West Bank, is under occupation. On top of that, as you will learn if you visit the West Bank, and I encourage you to do so to see all of this for yourself, the occupation is kind of the biggest thing that people talk about. Even if you're talking about something else, it's always there in the background. And I'll tell you a story about when I first landed in the West Bank, just embarking on a research project that would ultimately have me living in the West Bank in Jerusalem for a little under a year over the span of several years, which is how I eventually came to know Isa. But in the beginning, I was staying with a Palestinian family in 
a village called Betsahor, and I stayed with this family for several weeks. Now, as is traditional in Palestine, this wasn't a small nuclear family I was staying with, but rather a large extended clan with each smaller nuclear family occupying its own apartment altogether on the same land. I would call it a compound, but that suggests walls and security, and it wasn't like that at all. Betsahor is, in my experience, a very peaceful, calm place to live. I'll get into why there are these islands of relative calm within the occupation in the next episode, but they do exist. Anyway, as you might imagine, the living room of the patriarch and matriarch of this large extended family was something of a social hub. It was one of those big Palestinian living rooms with three or maybe four couches and a big TV and a freezer stocked with food and popsicles for the children who were always running in and out looking for each other, looking for their cousins. So here we are one night after dinner, all of us sitting there in this living room, every seat full of family, full of cousins, everyone drinking tea and coffee, the children crawling all over their grandparents, especially their grandfather, who was incredibly tolerant and kind to them and to me. I had noticed this about him right away and also noticed that he was quite thin and visibly weak and that he had this little cough that he couldn't seem to get rid of. So the family's welcoming me, showing me how to work the TV, showing me just how many channels you can get in Palestine, which is a lot. And we notice that it's it's Michael Jackson video after Michael Jackson video on every channel. And so finally, someone realizes that Michael Jackson has just died. So we're talking about Michael Jackson a lot, which I mentioned because I know that people love to exoticize the Palestinians. And I can tell you just from my own experience that Palestinians really are not that exotic. So... We're all talking about Michael Jackson, but simultaneously, the family is having another pressing conversation. That is, the grandfather, who the children are crawling all over, has congestive heart disease. He's already had one surgery, and now he needs more care, more checkups, possibly even another operation. All of which leads the family into the following debate. Should we take him to Jerusalem, or should we take him to Jordan? Of course, what would be the default answer to that question has now become an almost impossible dream. Jerusalem. It's right there, as the Palestinians say. It's right there. Especially when you're sitting in Bet Sahor, which is just seven miles away. Jerusalem is where the grandfather has always gone for medical care. It's where his doctor has always practiced. But now they both need a permit, a permit from Israel. And this is extremely hard to get. On top of that, even if they do get a permit, no one can be sure what will happen on the day he is to cross the checkpoint. Will the soldiers let him through? Will they let him through in a car? Or will they make him get out and walk, which could mean him standing for hours, which is not possible for him to do? And maybe you're thinking, well, Jerusalem is in Israel. The grandfather is crossing an international border, so what can he expect? But this is actually not the case. You might remember the discussion earlier, the discussion about the border that is called the Green Line, that is the only border agreed upon by Israel and its Arab neighbors at the close of the Arab-Israeli War of 1948. To reiterate, that line does not divide the West Bank from Jerusalem, but rather it goes down the middle of Jerusalem, 
leaving roughly the eastern half, including the old city, on the side of the West Bank. Therefore, when the grandfather goes to a checkpoint to enter Jerusalem, while he does have to interact with Israeli soldiers, and those soldiers may tell him that he cannot pass, that he cannot enter Jerusalem, those soldiers are not enforcing a border. That checkpoint is not located on the Green Line, nor is the wall that it is attached to located on the Green Line. But the family doesn't get into all of that right now. Instead, they start to talk about Jordan. Jordan is farther away. It's less familiar. And even though the border they have to cross to get there is located between Jordan and the West Bank, it is still manned by Israeli soldiers because Israel also controls the West Bank's external borders. So maybe the family will get out of the West Bank and into Jordan without any trouble. But then what about getting back in? What about getting home? That part is less clear. In addition to that, the last time they crossed the border to Jordan with the grandfather in an ambulance, the soldiers still wanted him to get out and walk. He only got lucky at the last minute with one soldier who happened to take pity. So every day you're having conversations like these. It's inescapable. And these barriers to freedom of movement are just the tip of the iceberg. I talked to Isa about the inescapable nature of the occupation. They control the food, they control electricity, they control water, they control our movement. We have in West Bank 360 movement obstacles, in Hebron 105. We have more than 99 checkpoints, in Hebron 22 checkpoints. So they are really suppressing the Palestinian and restricting their movement, and they are restricting even education. You know, if you want to study uh, abroad, you don't come back because you you, will, you are afraid that the occupation will not let you continue your studies and you don't choose whatever, anything you study. Engineering is, is a threat to study in Palestine. Oh, uh, you are engineers, especially if you are electrical engineer, it means you are targeted by the occupation. So the occupation is control, controlling all aspects of our life. We want to be able to raise our children, to have families, to choose where to live, to choose what to study, to choose when to travel and when not, to choose when what to work, what to do in our life. We don't have all of that. We can't choose. You know, you can't plan your day. You can't plan your your life. Everything is uh, depending on the political situation, and everything is depending on the occupation almost. We'll get more into Issa's life in the next episode, including his many attempts to gain his college degree and become an electric engineer. We'll talk about how the obstacles he faced as a person living under occupation ultimately propelled him towards a life of nonviolent activism. We'll also get deeper into the situation of Issa's hometown of Hebron, where the military exercises a particularly harsh grip. Every day in Hebron, you're waking up to a new reality. Checkpoints that were open yesterday are closed today. Shops, houses, even entire roads that were open yesterday are closed today. So you can imagine how this would work on your mind were you to live in such an environment. And you can imagine how it would work on the minds of young children who were just coming into an understanding of the world and who can never be sure whether they'll make it to where they're trying to go. For instance, whether they'll make it to school. You are not certain if you reach the school or not. 
So the students, they are not very serious about their studies. So if they have an exam, exam tomorrow, they think, okay, why we study hard? They may postpone, they may close. They, we may not reach the school. So that is a big deal that you are not certain about next day, about what will happen in the next day. And you are you think more of disturbance than input to your, to your, to your mind, that everything is disturbing you instead of, you know, processing it. So that, that is a big deal for the Palestinians and the closure, the blocks, the settlers' attacks, the soldiers' violence, disturb the minds of the children when they go to school. The school closures Isa is referring to here are unfortunately fairly common in Hebron. There are international peace groups, such as the Christian Peacemaker Team, which provide accompaniment and monitoring for school children as they try to make their way to and from school. The teams record whether the checkpoints the children must use are open. They record whether the soldiers search the children or their backpacks. They record whether the children are ultimately able to reach the school. I spent some time staying with the Christian Peacemaker team in Hebron years back, and during that period, it was perhaps a 10-day period, a boys' school that the team was monitoring was closed for the day by the military. The soldiers stormed into the schoolyard, complaining that a student had thrown a stone at them, so the Christian Peacemaker team members followed them inside, and I followed them as well, and I did take some photos of that morning, so I'll share them on the site. They're not award-winning photos, but you can see the soldiers with their weapons and the children with their backpacks. But why am I telling you all of this? Why did I go into all of this context about the occupation, about Jerusalem, about a boys' school being closed down in Hebron? Well, this is just some of the context you need to understand the case of Isa Amro, who, again, is on trial before an Israeli military court for his nonviolent organizing in the West Bank. For instance, you might remember that I mentioned that one of the crimes Isa is being tried for is planning a demonstration without seeking a permit from the local military commander. To read the reports of the trial, the judge was very surprised that Isa didn't get this permit and that he didn't even know how to get this permit. But that question presupposes that ESA is operating in the context of some sort of responsive democracy. But if you view this case within the context of the occupation, and if you have some understanding of the daily operation of that occupation, then it's quite easy to understand that, of course, it would not be a simple thing to do to obtain a permit from an occupying army in order to stage a demonstration against that occupying army. This isn't some sort of responsive democracy we're talking about. In fact, daily life under occupation is brutal and humiliating. Here is how Isa describes the context in which he does his work. I am under the Israeli military law. By law, peaceful protesting is not allowed. Any meeting more than 10 is, is illegal. Any meeting with, with more than three needs a special permit from the army, which is impossible to get. Any kind of mobilization is not allowed. Any kind of saying no to the occupation will be considered incitement, and they can put you in jail from one year to 10 years. We'll get more into Isa's organizing in the next episode and into the work he does as a nonviolence leader. As I said at the outset, Isa has been called the Gandhi of Palestine, and I should note a couple of things about that. One, 
There are numerous leaders who use strategic nonviolence in Israel-Palestine. So Isa is hardly alone, even if his community of activists is very much under threat. Two, even though Isa is known as a leader in this area and is known for his self-restraint, it's really important to me that we don't paint him as a saint or the Palestinians as saints here. That is not at all the point of this discussion today, that one side is good and the other side is bad. Rather, the point of this discussion and what I really want to draw attention to today is the power differential at work what it means to live under occupation, what it means to have so much of your life dictated by a foreign military power, what it means to be able to exert no democratic control over that power, all while your local caretaker government can really do nothing about it, and in fact is expected to cooperate. Now, What I would really like to do is spend some time talking about that local caretaker government, about the Palestinian Authority and how it interacts with the occupation. The relationship of the PA to the occupation and the subjugation of the PA to the occupation is really important and is missing from almost every news story, every statement by an elected official, and from almost any analysis you will read. But I am going to stop here. In the next episode, part two, Isa and I will talk about his nonviolence organizing and more about the city of Hebron. In part three, we'll get deeper into the Israeli case and the legal context. Then in part four, we'll talk about the Palestinian Authority. We'll discuss how the PA was founded, why it was founded, what is expected of it, and how much control it really has. We'll also discuss the meddling in its elections, by which I mean the Palestinian Authority elections of 2005 and 2006, as there haven't been national elections since then. We'll also talk about this electronic crimes law that was passed by presidential decree by the Palestinian Authority president, who has not stood for election since he was elected to a four-year term 14 years ago. In the meantime, I want to thank Isa for being here with us over all four of these episodes, and I want to thank you, the listener, for being here as well. Till next time, this has been Talking Human Rights. I'm Heather Robertson-Gaston. You can visit us on the web at www.talkinghumanrights.com.